0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Today's guest offered me a pithy one-liner as a provocation for the discussion that follows. It is, simply, that Malays did not make Malaysia, Malaysia made Malays. Our guest's argument is that identity is not set in stone. It is emergent, situational, and contingent. And to understand how identity has shaped and shaped in Malaysia, we need to think about, well, many things. To tell us more, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Tom Popinski, the Walter F. LaFeber Professor of Government and Public Policy at Cornell University, and also Director of the Cornell Southeast Asia Program and non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Tom studies comparative politics and political economy, with a special focus on Indonesia and Malaysia. His current research looks at the political economy of ethnicity in the Malay world. He's the co-author of Piety and Public Opinion, Understanding Indonesian Islam, published in 2018, and co-editor of Beyond Oligarchy. Wealth, Power, and Contemporary Indonesian Politics, published in 2014. Hi, Tom. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me here. Welcome. I had the great pleasure of meeting Tom recently at Cornell University, where he first mentioned this research project to me. In fact, he told me that he was writing a book about the political regulation of Malay identity. So my first question then, as it is now, was, what do you mean by Malay identity?
0: Well, this is going to be one of those questions which is both simple and complicated to answer. So let me do the best I can. In simple terms, what I mean by Malay identity is the sense of there being a set of people who are Malay, And that's not simply a restatement of the question, as I'm going to try to share with you throughout today's conversation. But rather, the idea that one is Malay, specifically in the sense that one is thought to be Malay, is kind of the core point of the argument that I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to say in this research, what I'm trying to uncover, is the ways in which the category Malay has come to have the meaning that it has today, and the kind of political forces, historical, economic, social, and other, that shape that meaning both over time as it changes and across countries.
1: So an ostensibly simple answer to a simple question, but as you have revealed, it's also a very complicated issue. Before we get into it, I want you to clarify for me and for our listeners how you understand the difference between identity and ethnicity.
0: Yes. So I'm interested in the notion that People in Malaysia in particular, which is my country of focus for this part of the research, but also comparatively in Singapore, Brunei, and Indonesia as well, come to understand that they are members of a group which is called an ethnic group, and that ethnic group is the Malay ethnic group. For me, ethnicity is one instance of social identity. There are other types of social identity besides ethnicity, religion, class, Political identity and many others. But for me, ethnicity is a statement about being a member of a group that shares a common heritage. Heritage for me is important. I didn't say descent, I said heritage, because what I mean is a kind of cultural or social understanding of one's place in the world. Now, I also want to distinguish identity from what I'm starting to call, as I think through this problem, the notion of a social category. So the word identity, in English, it has two separate meanings, like what is the type of person that you are, and then a distinct question of what type of person do you feel yourself to be? One you think of as more externally generated, and the other one is more internally generated, and sometimes they are the same. So the identity that you feel is the category that you've been assigned. But I think that the term social category does a better job of getting what I'm after here which is i want to understand how people come to be understood as members of a group of people who share a common heritage so you can
1: think about identity in terms of how you are identified and also how you yourself identify
0: that's right and i think these are analytically related questions but they're also distinct from one another and i'm really interested first and foremost i think i have a contribution to make to understand how one is identified and It's an open question to what extent that is common with or identical to how one identifies. But it's the former, the categorization, to borrow terms from Rogers Brubaker and James Fearon, how that works. That's the thing that I'm most interested in studying here.
1: Okay. Well, that's a great segue to my next question, which is about these categories, which you've mentioned, ethnic identity, social identity, political identity, obviously gender and sexual identity would factor into that as well. How useful are these categorizations in a Malay context? I mean, I'm assuming they are useful because this is the framework with which you're approaching your research question. But can you tell us how they overlap or conflict or sort of generate new insights in terms of your research?
0: Sure. I think these are useful because these are the terms that Malaysians and others in the Malay world use to describe themselves. I've often thought that my own understanding of Malaysia must be in some sense fundamentally shaped by my first experience in Malaysia, like my literal first experience at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Having never been in Malaysia before, but just having arrived from Jakarta, I got into a taxi cab and asked the driver in my sort of Indonesian-accented Malay to take me to my hotel. And the driver refused to respond to me in, in Malay. He wanted to respond to me in English. That seemed like a very trivial interaction. And the reason why he wanted to speak to me in English rather than Malay, I, I came to understand through the course of the conversation, is not that he didn't speak Malay, but rather because he was he identified as Chinese Malaysian. And this sort of very mundane interaction taught me something which I think is important and I think is general across Malaysian politics and society, certainly in the peninsula, that this is just a task that ordinary people engage in almost without thought many, many times during the day. The idea of placing oneself or placing others in categories. In Malaysia in particular, what type, what ethnic group are you a member of is a a very salient question. In particular, I I will keep emphasizing I'm focusing here on the peninsula rather than Sabah Sarawak, where the dynamics are very different. But in peninsula in Malaysia, this is just a useful, productive set of social practices that I wish to understand. And the thing I wish to understand about it is not whether or not people are right or wrong or correct or not, or whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm really interested in understanding how, given a very limited set of information, people go about imputing or assigning or categorizing others as members of social categories like ethnicity.
1: Okay. We're talking about social categories here. Can you give us some examples of different types of social categories before we come to the Malaysian context?
0: Sure. Social categories for me are socially significant classifications of people. These would include ethnicity. They would also include race, citizenship, national identity, gender, sex, sexuality, and principle, probably others as well. Sometimes a social category can be fairly trivial or sound fairly trivial. The example I like to give is surfer. So surfer is a social category. There are people who are categorized as surfers, and then there are people who are not. But a social category is any socially significant classification of individuals. The ones that I'm interested in here, the social category I find most interesting is ethnicity. But the others that have been studied in particular in contemporary philosophy and the sort of sub-discipline of social ontology are things like race, sex, and gender.
1: Yeah. Okay. So in a Malaysian context, what are the social categories and what is their history? Where do these categories date to when we're thinking about Malays, Chinese, and Indians?
0: There's an interesting sort of historiographical and linguistic challenge that I'm going to have to speak about just briefly to answer that question. There's a difference between the question, when did people first start saying these words and when did they come to have the generally accepted meaning that they have today? So we know that the words like Malay date at least to the time of Ptolemy. So almost 2000 years, we have some record of people using a word like Malay to describe this place. But the argument that I'm making in this manuscript that I'm working on is going to be that Malay Did not come to have the meaning that it currently has in Malaysia until after independence. An interesting challenge for me is to study the use of the term Malay without imputing a common meaning to it, while also insisting that it's not sort of vacuous or arbitrary. It's always designed to refer to something, but the thing that it refers to has changed over time, or the content of the social category or the status assigned with it has changed over time. So, in the Malaysian context, one social category. Is Malay, but there are, of course, many others. Chinese, Indian are the two other generally accepted census designations in the peninsula. But if you scratch under the surface just a little bit, it's not hard to find, for example, Orang Asli, Orang Laut, Kristang, Minangkabau. You know, there are many, many different types of social categories that may be subsets of Malay or partially overlapping with Malay or distinct entirely. And it's these challenges which generate the problem of how did we come to have a fairly spare set of general census categories in Malaysia to describe potential in Malaysia in particular, the three main ethnic groups when the historical facts of the matter are just way more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, why is that? Were these categories sort of always destined to be the three categories that you ended up with on the census. How were the decisions made? I mean, were they purely practical about what to include as a social category and what to leave out? Or how are you factoring in the sort of political and economic reasons for the emergence of these three distinct dominating categories?
0: That's a great question. And to be perfectly honest, I'm still working through this. So my answer here is going to be a little bit provisional. But I think that I have a good sense of the beginning and the end of the story, and what I need to fill in is the middle. The end of the story is, I am going to argue in this manuscript that the post-colonial emergent political order of the Federation of Malaya was established as an alternative to the Malayan Union Scheme, as it was called at the time, that was designed to organize Malaysian politics along ethnic lines, and in particular, by naming political parties, the three political parties that were most amenable to the parting British colonial regime, to name political parties after ethnic groups. Now, once you decide that political parties have an ethnic constituency, you also have to invent a set of rules or a set of instructions for knowing which of the parties is the one for you, which is the ethnic group that you're a member of, and therefore, how do we assign individuals to political parties? And this is the part I don't, I haven't fully figured this out. I don't have full confidence in the story. I hope to work on it. Was that the membership of UMNO, the United Malays National Organization, during its founding, its first general meeting, they probably had to have a discussion about who was going to be allowed to be members of this group. We know that it was deliberately meant to be inclusive of non-Chinese, non-Indian citizens of the peninsula who were not may not have identified themselves as Malay. And we also know that many of the elite figures were of mixed backgrounds, Arab Malays in particular in Singapore were main players in this. And so I believe that the story of how this category came to have the meaning that it has, emerged in the process of forging an independent Malaya at the time, Malaysia later. And that process involved creating the political vehicles that were designed to recognize the aspirations of, of the Malayan people. And it's in that politics where these categories get decided. And then I have a, an account about how that has had unintended consequences going forward. The first most important thing to remember about the social category Malay in Malaysia is that it does not depend in the first instance on ancestry or genealogy. It often does, but the Constitution defines Malay without reference to genealogy, solely with reference to religion, custom, and language. And I suspect that the reason why it does that is that that is the arrangement that would have incorporated most of the people who have come to be understood as Malay today.
1: That's really interesting. And I was going to ask you, you know, without referring to the recent general election, but what are the long-term ramifications of how Malayness was conceptualized around the time of independence? And in particular, who was incentivized to shape and change and construct these different concepts of identity?
0: These are great questions. I have so much to tell you about the most recent election. Without boring you with all the details and the things that I think about, one thing that I settled upon when I was first kicking around this project in 2015, 2016. I think perhaps when you and I first met at the ANU, at the ASAA conference, I was presenting an early version of this. And I was was trying to make the argument at the time that Malay is an interesting social category in Malaysia because it is held to be the obvious indigenous population of Malaysia, and yet it's not defined as such. It's defined via things that you and I could do. We could convert to Islam, we could habitually follow Malay custom, and we could speak Malay if we wanted to. Because Malay, as so defined, is an achievable identity in this way, it means that to construct a social category that isn't open to everybody, you have to develop some barriers, right? You have to develop some ways to demarcate what one is Malay versus not. And specifically in a situation like Malaysia in which there are political and economic consequences to how one identifies. You will remember, for example, the famous new economic policy, which was designed to both eliminate all, as they called it, hardcore poverty, but also to achieve economic equality across the ethnic groups of Malaysia. To do that, Malays were given special privileges that were economically consequential. Now, many people would like those privileges. So how do you develop a set of institutions that doesn't let people just assert that they're Malays also. One thing that I think becomes particularly important here is the regulation of religion, which is, as your listeners may know, a very central part of Malaysian politics also. The fact that the Malaysian constitution defines all Malays as Muslims, to identify as Malay, one must be a Muslim, and this is something the government tracks. And you can convert to Islam, but it is very hard to convert out of it under Malaysian law. This is the type of consequence for the regulation of religion, which I don't think anybody sat down and planned out. But I think the emerging cleavage structure after GE15 in Malaysia is one that distinguishes basically Islamist interests and Malay national interests, on the one hand, from a sort of multi-ethnic, multi-religious coalition, which is the coalition led by Anwar. So it is creating a type of politics which is not any longer strictly about Malayness. It's about Islam.
1: I don't want to get distracted by the election, even though I'm very interested in what you have to say about it. I did want to ask you about a statement you made that we can study ethnic identities in a principled way by treating ethnicity as a social convention. What do you mean by principled manner here?
0: As I've been reading for this project, I've been struck by two observations. One is just how much of the kind of primordialist literature is out there in the world. So primordialists, by this, I mean the type of analysis of ethnicity, race, and other categories, which says that people are born as a member of a community. This is a historical fact about them. It's an objective thing. And many people in the 19th century in particular, there's a like romantic era conceptualizations of like, the Ukrainian people are this, and the Hungarian people are this. And these are sort of primordial sentiments that are, that are attached to individuals. So I'm struck by that. I'm also struck by the fact that really nobody believes this anymore. And instead, we've replaced it with what I consider to be a true but vacuous alternative, which is constructivism. I say vacuous because constructivists are very good at observing that social categories like ethnicity are socially constructed. And I agree that they are correct in saying this, but social constructivists, because they're concerned to differentiate themselves from primordialists or essentialists, they tend to not tell you very carefully what ethnic identities are constructed out of. The reason why you might not want to do this if you're a constructivist is because it can sound like you're just being a primordialist. It sounds like you're like re-importing the same false conceptual baggage into this definition. So I think that's this presents a problem for us. So scholars of ethnicity and social categories, they need to be able to refer specifically to things. Socially constructed does not mean arbitrary. It does not mean generic. It means following a particular logic, and I want to uncover that logic. So the way that I've done this is to read this literature in philosophical field of social ontology, in particular work by a philosopher named Asta, who's at Duke University, a feminist philosopher, who's written a book called The Categories We Live By, which I recommend to all of you, which is designed to explain how people come to inhabit or be classified as members of these social categories. And what she argues is that one is a member of a social category just in case They are accorded a certain social status, it can be good or it can be bad, or high or low, based on either a feature or a behavior. And so that is just a convention. The term that I use to describe that is a convention, not like an academic convention, but like a, a convention, like a repeated way of being or acting in specific situations. And so I think that we can study these processes of social categorization by treating them as conventions through which individuals accord others' status based on their features or behaviors. That's what I mean by a principled way to study ethnicity and other social categories.
1: And I think in answering that question, you've sort of also answered my question about what sort of methodologies you're using to examine this question of the politics of identity, of ethnicity and identity in the Malay world. Is there anything you'd like to add in terms of methodology? It seems to me a very slippery question you've set yourself. And as you said, you've got the beginning and the end, but you're still working on the middle bit. Are you confident that you can tackle it?
0: My confidence is 75% that I can tackle it. Most of what I'm doing for this project is reading. I'm very interested in any report that I can find by any arab chinese european or indigenous observer of the early colonial period like what did they think that the people around them were what words did they use to describe them what basis did they make the determinations of who the people were when you look at the for example early accounts of portuguese malacca you hear that there were four shabandars and they represented four different groups who were the groups and what were japanese can were they part of Was there a separate category for people from Sri Lanka versus other parts of South Asia? These are all just like facts that I want to learn. And I can only do that by reading the histories. Another thing that I draw on is my experience as somebody who's lived and worked and studied Malaysia for, for a while now. I think that I have the ability to describe what other people would also describe about the kind of ever presence of this form of social categorization, just Look at the way that parties compete in elections in Malaysia. They organize themselves on ethnic lines, and if they don't, they are accused of doing so anyway. I'm thinking here of DAP and PKR. And then the third methodology that I use is I use surveys and statistical analysis. I'm careful in doing this. You know, data don't speak for themselves, and quantitative data are a social product also. The part that I've been working on this past month is using computational tools for natural language processing to develop a way to cluster open-ended survey responses. I had a survey firm in Malaysia and then another one in Indonesia ask people, like, what comes to mind when I say the word Malay to you? What comes to mind when I say the word Chinese? I didn't give them any instructions about what they were supposed to say. I didn't prejudge the responses. I didn't give them a set of boxes to tick one, tick two, something like that. I just asked them, what comes to mind. And then by using natural language processing tools, I was able to show, and I think it's pretty remarkable how effective this is. When people in Malaysia talk about the things that come to mind when they hear the word Malay, they say religion, language, and culture. When they answer that question in Indonesia, that's not the answer that they give. If I do nothing else, I would like to explain why that difference exists.
1: What is the answer they give in Indonesia? You have to tell us that now.
0: Oh, the answer is, it's a lot more varied what the answers are. But more frequently, they will talk about Islam, but in a different way. They will also talk more about appearance and locality. So they will talk about the place that they're supposed to be from, like the part of Indonesia they're supposed to be from. They'll talk about what they look like, which is something that Malaysian respondents are very reluctant to do when talking about what a Malay is, because if they did that, they'd give up the game that there is no... Way to visually classify a Malay. So, phenotype isn't really an issue there. And also, I asked them the same thing about what comes to mind when I say the word Chinese to you. And they give a different set of responses. And that too varies between Malaysia and Indonesia. In Malaysia in particular, the words that form the responses to those questions are overwhelmingly about selfishness and business. And the other thing that is often said is pig, Bobby. That is not used in Indonesia. So even two different groups which face at the very highest level, the same sort of biases and prejudices in the two countries, the everyday understanding of what that category means is still not the same. And that's interesting to me.
1: Look, it is really interesting. And we wish you the best of luck in figuring out the middle part and finalizing this manuscript in due course. Please keep us posted. I do want to end by asking you about the implications of this research. More broadly, you know it's always really wonderful to see it. research that is developed from Southeast Asian studies has something to tell us about how the wider world works. How does this particular research
0: project contribute to global conversations about identity politics? If I'm lucky, if I get this right, my aspiration is for this to contribute at a very fundamental way to those global conversations. It's not just a Malaysian or a, a Malay world or a Southeast Asian problem to Determine what groups members are part of. A lot of this research project has been personally revealing for me because I've asked myself questions like, well, what group am I a part of? In what sense am I a member of that group? In the United States context, these are very fraught issues. Your listeners may be interested in learning about a very serious controversy in philosophy in the mid 2010s, known to some people as the Tuvel Affair, T U V E L. This was occasioned by a feminist philosopher who wrote an essay in a prominent feminist philosophy journal that asked, well, if transgenderism is a thing, why isn't transracialism a thing? And even posing that question proved so provocative and so challenging to established understandings of social categories that she faced a demand for it to be withdrawn, even posing the questions. And there's there's a whole interesting set of things going on there. But I want to be clear, I am writing this because I care a lot about the Malay world and I want to get this right. But I also insist that what we learn from the Malay world is relevant to us. It's not just relevant. It's no different whatsoever. And in fact, I have a sentence in which may have to be struck at some later date in which I argue that the lessons from the Malay world are not particular to the Malay world. They are general and I mean them to apply universally. So the Problems that I am identifying here, I think are problems that are found across the world and they've been found throughout history. And I think that there's a close by mentioning a good articulation of this point is by Masna Muhammad and Kairun al They have a this book called Malayu, you know, the Malay word for Malay, where they entertain a bunch of interesting reflections on things like politics and poetics and the emergence of a category like Malay. And what they argue is that In their analysis, many Westerners look at the category Malay and conclude that it's arbitrary and fictional and made up in some sense. And therefore, it's not really real. It doesn't really refer to anything. And they make the point that may be true, but that is equally true of any other ethnic category anywhere in the world. And so I really think that they've articulated better than I can hope to do the value of studying Malay. It's not just because it matters there or for them, although it does. It matters for all of us.
1: You know, if that sentence about the universal lessons you can draw from this study does get struck from your manuscript, at least you've had the
0: chance to say it on the SIAC Stories podcast.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. It's such an interesting question and project, and we wish you all the best with it.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been my great pleasure.
1: You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favorite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.